Welcome to the Disaster Tough Podcast, where we talk about emergency management by emergency managers. We share stories, lessons, and tips to help keep you moving forward. I am John Scardina, the host. I share my experience as a former federal emergency response official who's responded to some of the most extreme disasters over the past decade. I now lead a private emergency management firm called Doberman Emergency Management that focuses on emergency planning, mitigation, and response. This is episode six. Today we get to have the opportunity to talk to Rodney Melsick, who I've been calling the GOAT, the, the greatest of all time, the emergency planner, who's been extremely influential in our field, who has been writing emergency plans for the United States government as a uh, planning section chief on the national IMAT. He's also worked internationally, so we get to hear some of his stories today of his experiences. You know, on that first episode, we talked about one of Rodney's axioms. You know, there's no such thing as plan B. There's uh, only plan A. Make plan A work. So we're going to be talking about that today. We're going to be talking about his leadership style and why he's so influential, how he's been able to build loyalty. Rodney, thank you for joining our podcast. It's good to have you on. My pleasure. Believe me, my pleasure. Thank you. Okay, so let's just jump in. Uh, those axioms, right? You've developed, I think, over, I think it was 66 axioms the last time I saw it. Is that right? Was it 66? Uh, you could be right. I don't know the exact <laughs> number, but that sounds about right. Well, when we went through it, uh, you know, you you had this presentation the first time I saw it before I worked for you where you kind of went through and you said, hey, this is the most important thing, and this is the most important thing. And you kind of went through those, you know, what, quote unquote, self-evident truths, right? So how did you collect them? Did you collect them all at, during FEMA, or was this an accumulation throughout your career? No, I, I, I'll say that I collected them uh, for the most part uh, uh, when I joined FEMA in the late 1990s, and I worked for FEMA for 22 years pretty much in my same role as a planning section chief. And in the very beginning, I started collecting these, ax these axioms right off the bat in the very beginning because I worked with some very, very strong emergency managers, very experienced emergency managers. When I joined FEMA, I was very lucky. I got to serve under them and learn from them. And one of the, it's funny, one of the ways that, they taught me planning was, uh, and we're going to talk about this again, I, I think, uh, during the podcast. One of the ways they taught me about planning was how to whiteboard, how to whiteboard uh, ideas, how to whiteboard plans, how to whiteboard processes, how to whiteboard uh, 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 when you sit around a table and, and come up with ideas on how to solve problems and what to do. They taught me about using a whiteboard to do all that. They were, as again, I say, these were very experienced people and I learned so much from them. And I learned that in the process of doing this whiteboarding on all these different projects we were working on, whether it be writing a plan or whether it be coming up with options for operational uh, people or whatever it was, we would whiteboard the solutions. And during the process of doing all that whiteboarding, all of a sudden I'm sitting back and I'm looking at a whiteboard and I'm saying, gee, that's, that's a pretty good idea we got right there. Very short, very concise, yeah. uh, an axiom that, that we live by and the planners should live by it. We had incorporated that maybe into some other thing we were discussing. And you kind of look back at the whiteboard and say, hey, I, I got to copy that down. That sounds pretty good. That's that's something we could all live by. If we incorporated that idea into everything we do as planners, that's, that's going to make us better planners. That's going to make sense. So we, this, for me, started the minute, you know, uh, just months after I had joined FEMA back in the late 1990s. And I was able to serve with these, with these fellows through the 1990s and into the 2000s. Uh, just before the uh, IMAT teams were developed in uh, 2009. So for about a dozen years, I worked with these fellows all, every week, all the time, on so many different disasters, I, I couldn't even name them all. And every time we did the same thing, we sat at those whiteboards, they, they'd get us in a room, 
These guys were very smart. They'd get us in a room with a big, with a couple of big whiteboards up and say, okay, here's the problem. Let's whiteboard the solution, whiteboard the plan, whiteboard whatever it is we were working on, and let's come up with the answers. And then they would, their job was to do that. And then they would walk out of the room and say, okay, uh, Rodney, you're a planner here. You put it, you're the wordsmith. You put it on paper for us. So and I, I wish I had taken a picture of some of those whiteboards because they were just jammed from top to bottom, lengthwise, so many words on all those <laughs> whiteboards all around the room. And when I got done, we had a, you know, if we were working on a plan, when I got done with three or four whiteboards, we had a plan. It was down on paper. That's awesome. So that's kind of how the axioms came along. Uh, I have to say that, that that's how that all developed. Now, I remember doing some of those whiteboarding, uh, I wouldn't say exercises, but, you know, walkthroughs with you. We'd go into your office and we would just, you know, plan things out. But what I found, uh, and maybe you can talk about this a little bit, uh, you know, you're talking about whiteboarding. You can only put so much on a whiteboard and you have to be really concise and know exactly what everybody, everybody should have the same clear picture of what's on that whiteboard so that you go through and develop a plan. When we would go out to disasters, uh, I would find that people with not as much as experience would would overthink it. They would want these really long documents, and they would take a lot of time to, you know, put it together. So you had these two almost conflicting ideas that, you know, strategic level planners actually don't take. You know, we can, we can summarize things very quickly if we need to. So how do you combat that? Where a, a planner naturally writes a lot. You're the wordsmith guy. Right. But how do you how do you say, OK, let's start here. Let's start the smaller area and everybody should have a general idea. Why even build a, a greater plan from there? Because, I mean, experienced emergency managers know. I mean, they know because they develop some of these axioms. And one of them was, you know, you keep it simple, stupid. You the kids <laughs> I love that. Keep it simple, <laughs> stupid. I mean, they would tell me, you know, watch out, Rod. What you don't want to do, we don't want to have a 50-page document if we can have a 15-page document. There's no need for that. And you only and, and we talk about how much detail had to be included in everything that we were preparing. I mean, we would talk about that. Right? In this document, you got to put a little more detail. So if it's 30 pages long or 40 pages long, that's okay. But in the next one we do, we don't need so much detail. Hell, we could do it in 10 pages or five pages. You can put the whole thing down on paper and we understand it, know what to do, and, and we can make it operational or whatever we needed to do with it. And so these guys were very, very experienced, sharp emergency managers who understood that. And so often I found uh, that in, in later years, after I had I, after I had kind of ventured off by myself into the National IMAP program and whatever, but so many planners in FEMA and in other agencies and state agencies, maybe at local agencies, they didn't understand that process. They didn't understand that, yeah, you've got to adhere to the KISS principle as much as possible. And there are other principles that you adhere to. But but that's the way good emergency management is done. If you adhere to certain of those principles, you're going to come out on top. If you whiteboard it properly, if everybody understands what's happening, and if the writer understands. I, Unfortunately, back in uh, 10 years ago in FEMA, I used to see headquarters plans, hurricane plans that were, you know, 500 pages long. Well, the only thing they used those plans for was doorstops in their offices. Nobody <laughs> read a 500-page document. That was for sure. Well, I've never what, written a 500-page plan. But. Yeah, that's what planning support would do, right? We would get these these state plans, and the very first thing planning support Patrick would do would just say, hey, let's summarize the plan. Let's pull out what we need to know. It's like, okay, why don't we just start with that, you know? But it's hard to change that because – you know, I would say that if somebody doesn't have a lot of experience, my, myself included, you know, if I have gaps in understanding, it's way better to take the extra time. I mean, if you're not in a response to say, I need to walk through every single detail. And so I think it's uh, amazing that you're able to say, hey, even in the 90s, you were pretty experienced, but you took that extra time to really develop these axioms. And, uh, you know, obviously, you are where you are now, right? 
Well, one, one, one of the axioms deals exactly with that. It says that, uh, if, I think it's called the, the principle of diminishing returns. When I write something down, if I'm going to write an operational plan, if I'm going to write an operational plan of some kind, I'm going to write it for my level, for what, what, whatever level I'm at, whether I'm at a strategic level, the operational level, or the tactical level. I'm going to write it for the, for the level that I've been given control over. Mm. Well, my idea, the idea of the axiom is that if you write it at a strategic level, the strategic plan doesn't tell the tactical guy what to do. Totally confused. The, the only person that tells the tactical guy what to do is the commander of the tactical units on the ground. He tells the tactical units how to, how to implement a plan that may have been written by higher headquarters, but he's the guy that develops the ideas on how we're going to put this to work. Higher headquarters wants us to do this, and this is how we're going to do them. The strategic guy doesn't do that. Even at the mid-level, operational level, they don't do, they're not supposed to do that. You let, you, you let the lowest level that's going to implement a plan do the planning, do the actual implementation of it, figure out how that it's implemented. And too many planners make the mistake of thinking, well, if we're going to write this, we've got to tell everybody what they have to do. And that's not a good, a good thing to follow. Um, I've been reading the book Call uh, Sign Chaos by General Mattis, and he talks a lot about that too, how really good leaders, especially in the Marines, say, hey, here's our overarching plan. Here's the strategic plan. You figure it out. And you have to trust those people, right? Right. You know, you're talking about the KISS method. When I worked at um, the Red Cross, I was getting so annoyed by like the complexity that they were building within the office of like a, like a really simple problem that I ended up printing it off on eight by 11 sheets, multiple sheets, and I glued it or taped it above the, the door, the front door. My boss was so <laughs> mad, but I was just like, every time they would start to get complex, I would just like point <laughs> at the door. But uh, you had another one, uh, you had another sign on your door that I always liked too, was um, a lack of planning on your part doesn't create an emergency on mine. You remember that? You always had that, that on your was, That was right on my door. Yeah, <laughs> that's on my front door to any office I was ever in. A lack of a lack of planning on your part is not an emergency on my part. I mean, uh, you got to hold people responsible. People have to be held responsible for what they're supposed to do. Yeah, that's why. I mean, that's why this profession, the emergency management profession, in a way, was developed so that you you develop a cadre of real professionals in emergency management to do the thinking and the planning and the executing of, of emergency plans. Because when you think about it, I mean, this, this profession, and you know this for a fact, has bludgeoned in the past, has ballooned in the past 30 years. Whereas before that, it wasn't much. We never had a federal agency in emergency management until almost 1980. So it was, you know, and we had disasters long before 1980 yeah. in this country. I can tell you I was there, right? But it wasn't till then that we even got a professional federal agency to coordinate all of this. And just in the 40 years since then, uh, to, get, to get all the federal agencies and all the states and all the counties and all the cities to, to, to invest in the professional development of emergency managers, that's a hard task. That hasn't been accomplished in 40 years yet. I don't know when it will be accomplished. Well, but it's like any profession. It's like dentistry or doctors or lawyers. Eventually, you come to a point where you do have good programs for developing good managers, and, and they can run with it. But I don't think we've reached that point yet in emergency management, but that's what we're shooting for. Well, I agree. I mean, I mean, if you look at DHS, I think they stood up in 2004, right? That came from 9-11. Talk about a, a major shift. When you add in protection as one of the five key areas from four to five, uh, you're making a major shift in how people are addressing emergency management, right? Uh, I believe the city of Philadelphia, there's several uh, agencies in D.C. that are doing this. Um, I, I think a few others are now requiring their emergency managers to carry a weapon. Like, I would have never thought an emergency planner would carry a weapon, right? But when you add in protection as one of the, one of the areas that we're looking at, you're still really evolving what this field is. 
uh, I talk about how the public opinion is, thinks emergency managers are the first responders, and FEMA headquarters specifically thinks emergency managers are more paper pushers, right? And so you have like this constant conflicting opinion of are we coordinators behind the scenes or are we out in the field? And that's where the IMATs are really in that gray area of we're out there, but we're still trying to help coordinate behind the scenes. But uh, going back to these axioms, right? You've developed these over the last 20, 30 years. Is there one or two that like really stood out to you? Was it a whiteboard event or was it you're out in the field and you just said like, wow, this, this changes everything for me? I, you know, and I did this when, with your class with, in Georgetown when I was asked to give presentations to universities or I've been asked to give presentations to uh, civic clubs or schools, universities and whatever. Uh, I, always, I always lead off with that one of the first questions that comes up in any presentation I make is uh, somebody will stand up and say, Mr. Melzick, what's the most important thing in emergency management? Uh, they'll stand up and I'll say, okay, there are three important things in emergency management that you need to know as a future emergency manager. And, and they kind of fit in with the axioms here. But I said the first one is emergency management is about organization. The second one is emergency management is about organization. And the third <laughs> one is, look at the first two. Yeah. Organization is the key to, to doing to, to anything you want to accomplish in emergency management, organization is the key. Whether I'm at the, you know, I've been at the very, very tactical level out there training with and, and participating in exercises with first responders of all kinds, policemen, firemen, uh, uh, structural firefighters, wildland firefighters, all. I've been out there, I've practiced with these guys, I've been in exercises with these guys. I've been there on the ground at the tactical level, and then I've been at the strategic level, up with, with uh, uh, the White House and with, with FEMA headquarters. But no matter what level you're at, no matter what you're trying to do in emergency management, organization is the most important thing first. You must get organized. I, I guess the axiom would be get organized. Oh. Get organized. And people always used to kind of laugh at me sometimes, uh, uh, people with a little less experience about, I was very big into organization charts. Uh, no matter what level I was at, I wanted to see the org chart. I wanted to know what the organization looked like. I wanted to know the roles and responsibilities of everybody in the organization. I wanted to know that they understood that, that everybody understood what their role and responsibility was. There was no breakdown in communication, certainly no breakdown in command. And, and, and I, I still think that organization is the key to anything we do in emergency management. That's something I didn't appreciate before I came and worked with you. Uh, I didn't really think much of it. I, I, would got, I would get hired for a job and I would try to do my job. And so I could understand my role, but it was hard for others to do accountability and for me to do accountability with them because we didn't really understand where we fell in. And after I left your team, and I joined another company, uh, they refused to do an org chart. I kept on asking for their org chart and I saw how much of a cluster was. It drove me nuts. Like who's who's in charge here? Who, who gets to pull a trigger? And everybody would always say, oh, it's a collaborative effort. No, at the end of the day, someone is responsible you can make believe as much as you want that there's not a, a hidden org chart, but there is. And the longer I stayed there, I was able to start drawing the lines. Okay, this person answers to this. And so they had it, but they didn't want to invest the time to do it. And quite frankly, it, it you know hurt their responsibility and their accountability uh, down the line. So You used a good word there, and that's responsibility. And another one of the axioms in any kind of planning that you do is make somebody responsible for everything. Especially when I was gonna put words to paper and I was gonna, uh, we, were, we were writing a plan, no matter what the plan entailed, if you, if you put an activity in a plan, if you put an action in a plan that must be accomplished, you must make somebody responsible for that activity or that action. Lots of planners didn't understand that. You must make somebody or some position Maybe not somebody by name, but some position 
responsible for everything you do in planning. And that's something I think a lot of emergency managers still don't realize a lot. Don't do a lot of planning. Don't do a lot of operational planning or tactical planning or strategic planning. That if you put it on paper, if you put something down on paper and you say, this must be done, here are the actions that must be taken in order to get to this result, you've got to make somebody responsible for every one of those actions. And the person or the position you make responsible of that has got to understand that. That's your role in this plan is to do that thing. And then hold it accountable if they don't, right? Uh, I talked about Puerto Rico, the the IMAT team that went over to Puerto Rico. They didn't really have a lot of accountability. They were too slow to Hurricane Maria. And it did cost them their jobs, right? Uh, That's pretty unfortunate. But I think that probably came back from... Uh, they were pretty inexperienced. There were several people who went out there that I thought, I don't know if they can handle a type one. And then they got out there and they were taking pictures on the beach like the first day. And I'm like, I wouldn't have been able to do that. I was working 18 hour days with my entire team. And so I just think like not understanding like their specific role and they write out this like really cute plan. But if you don't name every single role and every single responsibility, what it comes back to is whoever wrote that plan is now responsible. And if you write the plan and nobody does the work and you're responsible, then it's going to cost you your job. Uh, You're exactly right. So I talked about how, uh, you know, there's no such thing as plan B. Where did that come from? And why are you so adamant about that? Because I think a lot of people are thinking, oh, planners always have lots of different plans. Why make plan A work? Because, again, I had two very good mentors when I first started in FEMA guys that knew how to do these things very, very well, very experienced senior senior EM people had been doing EM for years and years and years. And they're the ones that, you know, in the beginning, I was probably like you. I'd say, okay, we're going to have a plan A, but we're going to have a plan B and maybe a plan C too yeah. because things go wrong. You know, crap happens as they say, right? Yeah. So, when things, if things go wrong, we better have a B and we better even have a C. And they, they sat me down and said, no, Rod, that's not the way we want to operate. If we're going to do this right, we're going to have plan A and, and we're going to get the right people working on plan A. You're going to have the best minds possible working on it. And what you're going to do with plan A is you're going to come up with a plan that works, that takes us to the outcomes that we want. And that's, a whole other discussion about outcomes. Mm. But if these are the outcomes that we want, this plan better get us there. And and we can best judge that. I'm speaking from their point of view now. We can best judge that because we've been doing this job a lot of years and we know how to get to these outcomes and this, whatever we're planning, better get us to these outcomes. So you don't think about plan B, you don't think about plan C, you make plan A work. Don't, I hate to say don't make mistakes. We all make mistakes and and things happen. You know, things happen in the field that you can't even predict. But if you've got a good plan, if you've got a really good plan that you try to take everything into consideration, and that's why the organization is so important because you've got those minds sitting around a table doing this stuff, working on these whiteboards, working on these plans. Hopefully, you're going you're gonna to cover 95 to 100% of everything that could go wrong, and you're going to allow for it, and your plan A is going to work. And they convinced me of that, that that was the way to operate. And so after that, I learned to operate that way. That's pretty cool. I think of it like uh, that keep it simple, st- stupid methodology. When you have your outcomes that you want, you don't create – 400 outcomes you say life sustaining life stabilization you know we want to save lives right so if you keep your outcomes really simple you know our overarching plan then you let the tactical and the operational level planners kind of figure out how to make that happen you don't have to worry about you know oh if if everybody dies well if everybody dies then you don't have to worry about a plan b because you're dead anyways right so uh because of you and working on your team, I started creating, you know, some of my own axioms. 
of okay like these are these are self self-identifiable truths like this is something i have to live by in order to be successful uh, but I was able to see that a lot from you and um, do those whiteboarding and have those planning sessions and countless hours in your office arguing back and forth and you'd always prove me wrong, right? But how do you how do you have that experience where if you don't work from some with somebody who's extremely experienced like yourself, how do you become experienced? How do you start identifying those own axioms? Yeah, that's, that's, I mean, that's for all experienced emergency managers to think about and work on. I mean, I, 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 it was my management philosophy that once I had attained all of this great knowledge from these mentors that I had, and I had been doing this for a number of years, five to 10 years, whatever, and I got into the position where I had a chance to mentor people myself and to, and to bring people onto my team and to put together planning teams of, of my choosing that I, I always believed in two things. First, I wanted to surround myself with the best people possible, the most experienced, knowledgeable people there was. But second, I wanted to ensure that other people that we could bring on were not so experienced and needed the experience. They needed the mentorship that we could give them. They needed the training that we could give them. They needed all of this good stuff simply by sitting at the table. And if they didn't have anything to contribute, that was fine. Just sit there and take this all in and, and understand how this process works. And the more you understand, the better emergency manager you're going to be. So in every instance, when I, was, when I was in a position to either write plans or develop ideas or develop options or work on operational stuff, level stuff, or even tactical level stuff. I want to bring in those two groups of people with me. I want the best people I can get around me to give me advice and to have who have knowledge and experience and can really put their ideas down on paper. And secondly, I want that next group, the next group coming along who don't have that, we want to mentor them. They want to be mentored by us. And I, I, I think I was... I am particularly proud of the fact that I think I was able to accomplish that in my last 10 or 12 years in FEMA. I, had a, I was in a position where I could hire people. I was in a position where I could bring people into, the, into a planning process, into a planning project, where I got to select them and bring them up and, and do these things. And I think that, that I mean, this is, this is the guidelines I followed. I wanted the best with me. And I wanted the uh, less experience with us so that we could teach them and bring them up. You probably hired more inexperienced people than I've ever met. But every single person you've hired was, was able to do the job. I've seen other managers look at a resume and hire somebody who's very experienced, even, in, even on our own team. And when they got there, I just thought, eh, I don't know if they can do the job. Uh, so how are you able to identify talent? I mean, better than everybody else, because it's, it drives me nuts. Cause even me, a business owner, I'm like, Oh, I want to hire some people. I want to surround myself with the best people, but I also want to be able to identify talent. How do, how are you able to navigate that? I mean, Cam Starrett, he was on the show. He was one of those. You would look at all the, the FEMA core teams and you would hand pick which team you wanted. Right. How are you able to do that? Right. Uh, first of all, I, I'm going to brag about myself a little bit. I pride yeah. myself on being able to do that. I think during my, during my career, I, for some reason, I don't know if I got the, the right gene from my dad or from whomever, mm. I got the right gene that I can, I, I'm a very good judge of, of young of people. And so in the position that I was in and able to exercise that kind of authority and that kind of of power to hire people and to put people on, on in different roles. Uh, I can't say that I had any magic bullet. I can just say that I think the first magic bullet I had was I took other people's advice. I sought out and took other people's advice whom I trusted. Oh. That's the way I hired many of the people that I hired for the National I'm at West and in other projects that I was involved in. That I had a core of people over the 22 years I was in FEMA that I could go to and say, hey, 
you've worked with this person. How good is this person? And I took their advice. I take advice pretty easily. And I would take their recommendations and their advice pretty easily. I, I will admit to you, and, and probably something I shouldn't admit, I hired some people without even checking their resumes. I mean, without even <laughs> spending three minutes looking at a resume that they brought into my office and dropped on my desk, I knew immediately this was the person I, I wanted to hire this person. I didn't care what their resume said. I had talked to people they had worked for and got the highest recommendations and said, I don't need to see their resume. I'm going to hire this person. This is somebody I want on the team. And you and I was very, very lucky. I have to say that in almost every instance that that occurred, you're right. I, I got really, really fine people into positions that they, that they could handle. And they were, they grasped, they grasped the thing so quickly and so easily and were able to run with it. And I was just very, very lucky because I'm not the smartest, uh, I'm not the brightest bulb in the drawer. Whatever. I'm not the smartest guy. I certainly am not smart when it comes to technology, but I put the right people around me, found the right people around me to do those jobs. That sounds, uh, uh, in one way, very presidential, right? You find the best people and put them around you so you can make smart decisions. Uh, you know, you were talking and it reminded me of two experiences. One, way before I even got into emergency management, my first real sales job when I was 18, I, I walked in there with my worthless resume, you know, McDonald's or whatever it was, paper route. And she looked at it, she just ripped it up. She goes, why do you want to sell? And I, I learned very quickly. I mean, I got the job, which is awesome. But, you know, who you know and how you talk to people how you present yourself means much more than you put on paper. And so years later, when I was in Georgetown and before I joined the team, you know, I tried my, my best to, to just present myself in the most uh, professional way possible at all times, right? Whether it's uh, creating good relationships or just being a, a good friend or having a good sense of humor, letting things roll off my back, whatever. Even in Georgetown, I tried to do that with my professors. And they really pushed doing GIS. Well, at that point in my career, I had done a lot of uh, operational planning. I had not done a lot of GIS work, but I understood the value of it. And I understand that they, uh, that I recognized that they knew more than me. And so when we were outside, uh, I remember specifically a guy named Blake and a, a girl named Margaret arguing with me that GIS was not important. And I still remember saying GIS is the future of emergency management. And I am so glad I said that. I'm so glad I paid attention to my professors because right then, tap, 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 right on my shoulder, I want to see you in my office. Yeah, and, I, I, so I must have overheard that conversation. Oh, yeah. you were. I had no idea, but you were standing right, bef right behind me. You were just a presenter at that point. Uh, we were checking out um, some of the, the Comel equipment or whatever. Uh, and I went into your office, I met with Niklaus, and we talked, I was really frank. And I remember going back to DC and telling my wife, I was like, I, I think I'm gonna get a job offer on this team. She goes, oh, never move out to California. We're never moving out there. I was like, all right, cool. So I didn't think much of it, but you were persistent. You knew what you wanted. And again, I'm really grateful that I had developed the skill to listen to people who knew more than me. And my wife and I both talk a lot about we, we put a lot of trust into your advice and we moved out to California and that, I mean, exploded my career, all these disasters that we went on, uh, went out to. And so I'm just really grateful that you gave me the opportunity. Um, well, you probably don't know this, but I asked Nancy, uh, who, who, who brought your class to the National I Met West that time for the presentation or whatever. Huh. And I, I talked to Nancy at first and I talked to one or two others. And I said, who's the best person in this class? I need to hire somebody. I got a position opening. Who's the best person in this class? Because I don't have much time to spend with resumes and all this. I need somebody right now. You tell me who the best person in this class is that I could hire. And they, they pointed you out. They pointed really? you out. I didn't know that. You want to hire him. Him, that you were just a him then. You want to hire him, <laughs> that guy. 
So when I saw you out, when I walked out in the parking lot and you were talking, they were you were talking obviously about GIS or whatever. I knew, hey, they're right. This is the guy I want. So that's put you on the job. You finally tell me that yeah. for what four years, five years? No, that's... after four years, <laughs> right? You bamboozled me when I got on the team because you told me the team, the team only deployed twenty two days a year. And I got out there, and you're t- talking about hiring good talent, Dana and Patrick, Andy, all those guys, Kevin, Kevin Coleman, the man, right? Uh, all those guys were talking about how often they deployed. And I was like, oh my gosh, this guy, this guy lied to me. And I'm going to have to go home and tell my wife that I'm going to be gone 200 days a year, you know? <laughs> uh, thank goodness. Thank goodness you did, because I had no idea what I was getting into, and I... Uh, I just focused, I was one of those paper pusher guys who had focused so much on writing way too much without really being out in the field. And, uh, thank goodness that I tried hard in my program. I got to thank Nancy now for those who don't know, Nancy was the director of the Georgetown emergency management program, master's program. Uh, that means a, a lot to me because, uh, I am one of those guys that look for good mentors and I find Nancy and yourself, um, you know, in that crowd. So I, I want to back up a little bit, uh, if you still have some time, because before joining FEMA, you already had a pretty exciting career uh, helping out people in humanitarian aid, emergency management, whatever you want to call it. You've been at the Bal- you were in the Balkans, what, for 10 years? Kosovo, 10 years? 10 years. Uh-huh. You, were in, you were in China for three years, right? Correct. You were in Africa for, was it two or three? I was in Africa for a couple of years, right. So you're talking about, you know, a a pretty strong foundation of international humanitarian aid. What got you to want to do that? And then what drove you to wanting to to come and help the United States specifically? Because you already had a pretty good resume for international help. Well, my my first really international work, other than being in the Army and being deployed overseas when I was in my 20s, was that uh, I joined the Peace Corps. So I was in the Peace Corps for a number of years in Africa. And uh, I that was you know one of the greatest experiences of my life. I enjoyed that something just incredible. To go to a small village in, in Africa that I went to very, very remote with no services whatsoever, no amenities whatsoever, uh, living uh, really hand to mouth every day but I was helping people. I mean, I helped build a school. I helped uh, teach some classes at, at, at the school. And uh, it was just the, the most wonderful experience imaginable. Uh, after that experience, uh, I got calls. I mean, for some reason, my name got around that, well, this guy did a good job in the Peace Corps. So if anybody's looking for somebody to do some international work, I'm sure he might be available. Give him a call. So I got calls. Uh, and they wanted me to go to China, and then they wanted me to go to South Korea. I spent a couple of years in South Korea uh, running educational programs for them, uh, helping students in those two countries. Uh, just a mar- marvelous experiences. But then I spent about a decade in the Balkans. And uh, this was uh, uh, at the very conclusion of the Balkans War uh, with Kosovo and uh, Bosnia-Herzegovina and Serbia. And in that role, I, I was much more engaged in actually working with the victims of that war. Uh, thousands and thousands and thousands of victims had to be relocated in the Balkan, in, in those three states in the Balkans uh, that I worked with, uh, Bosnia and uh, uh, Serbia, and then the, the, uh, the uh, Christian part of Bosnia. They were separated into three parts, and we had to get them back together again. And we had to, we had to move all of these refugees all around to get them back to where they were originally living. And 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 there were obviously, in order to do that, there were lots of peacekeeping forces in the area. I worked with every imaginable our peacekeeping army in the world that was yes. were in the Balkans in that decade. And so here I was working with literally thousands of people over a 10 year period, helping them get the Balkans stable again, which they finally did. It finally worked out well. 
And then I get a call from uh, someone in, the, in FEMA, and they said, well, uh, you've been doing all this great work overseas. How would you like to work in America? How would you like to do this kind of thing in America? And by that time, I was getting probably a little bit older to do the kind of work internationally that I had been doing. There comes a point when you get to an age when working internationally becomes a little bit difficult, especially in the second and third world countries that I was working in. And you say to yourself, you know, it would be nice to go home to America and maybe I can do something. And when I got this call from my friend in FEMA, it was perfect. And, and they said, hey, apply to FEMA. I'm sure you'll get hired. And we need people. This was, this was uh, back uh, in the late 1990s. We, we need people. And I said, hey, that sounds perfect for me. And I just got in at the right time. And I had the right experience they wanted. And I was able to work, like I said in the beginning, with these very experienced people. I was so lucky to come under their tutelage that it was incredible. I give all the credit of anything I ever did to those, to those fellows. They were just incredible. And so that's how I got into it. But most of my adult career for the last for 20, 25 years before FEMA was overseas, was doing all this work overseas. Do you feel that your experience in specifically international humanitarian aid impacted how you responded uh, for, you know, U.S. citizens? Because we have so many additional programs to help people out, right? I find that it's a, it, it, if people want the help, they can probably find the help. I mean, they might have to fill out 5,000 documents to be able to get that help. But how do you, how do you compare that international aid of, like, true refugee to somebody who lost their home in a hurricane. How do you compare that and how did that impact you? The people overseas, the people that I saw both in Africa and in the Balkans who were, I mean, I was really in some dire circumstances then, uh, were not near as dependent or could not be near as dependent upon government aid as Americans are. I mean, you're right, when there's a hurricane, a flood, an earthquake, uh, the government, the federal government, the state's government come to their aid almost immediately. They come to the aid of people and they bring all the resources to bear that they have at the federal level, at the state level. And that's so many resources. It's just unbelievable. We'll feed people. We'll treat their illnesses. We'll put them in housing. We'll, we'll do so many. We'll repair their roads and their bridges to their communities. There are so many who will rebuild their schools and their libraries. There are so many things that, that government will do for people in America that other that governments in less developed countries cannot and will not, cannot do. They will not do them. They cannot do them. And so I don't want to say that, that people overseas are much more self-reliant, but they almost have to be. And they seem to be more reliant there seems to be a little bit more of a community spirit in in some of the in, in a lot of the places that i worked in but again i worked in small villages both in in the balkans and in 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 africa but the community spirit that they brought that the people brought when there was a problem was just incredible it was terrific sometimes in america i get the idea that people sit back and say, okay, well, the government's going to come help us. We know that one day the cavalry is going to arrive and they're going to bring us food and blankets and, and tents and they're going to bring us all this stuff and all we got to do is register, put our names on a piece of paper and boom, 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 we're going to get this stuff. Not that I'm, I'm not saying anything derogatory here, I hope, about you know Americans, but that's what emergency management is in America. It's to take care of our citizens. We are very cognizant of taking care of them as quickly as possible, where that's not true in so many, you know, so many underdeveloped places in the world that you don't look to government. You don't look to the guys at the county seat or the state capital or the federal level that, oh, they're going to come down and help me right away because that's not going to help it. In a lot of cases overseas, and you know this is true, that aid agencies that outside agencies are the best relief sources of resources that they have. For sure. Either the Red Cross comes in or, or Doctors Without Borders comes in or 
or USAID comes in, or so many of these organizations come in to help. Why? Because the local governments are not able to provide near the resources that are, that are necessary to take care of something. So it's kind of a different mindset. Yeah, there's, uh, there's an expectation in the United States that the government will take care of you. And again, that's not necessarily bad, but it, it does become a, a, an issue when you feel like your expectation is not being met. And if you don't have the skills of self-reliance, then, then it becomes a real problem. And it becomes a cascading problem for you, your family, your local community. Uh, in my, going back to Georgetown, in my uh, thesis, I talked about how uh, different cultures respond to disasters. And that community-level self-reliance that people have, whether the government helps out or not, when people are able to do that, they're able to help out their neighbor, they recover so much faster. And so Absolutely. I'm a patriot. I love my country. I, I think the United States and what we stand for is, you know, probably the best thing that have, has happened in the history of the world, honestly, the freedoms that we have. I do hope that we always remember, I mean, you're talking about emergency management the last 40 years. Before those 40 years, right, It was there was an expectation that communities have to help out themselves and that the government may help. Now we're starting to see state governments not put uh, you know, resources towards emergency services because they know the federal government will bail them out. And we're starting to see policy shifts that uh, increase that expectation that someone's gonna come and bail me out. And so how do you balance, like there's an expectation and that's good because you know we we should help out our own. You know we're all we're all Americans. We should help out. And even if you're not an American, right? If you're here, we should help you out. But there is a level of self reliance. But we don't want to create doomsday preppers either. So that's really a two part question. How do you balance helping people out, and how do you prevent doomsday prepping? Because like that's like a major no no in my mind. You know we don't want to create militias, for example. No, you're right. You're, you're absolutely right. Uh, it is a fine line. There is a fine line there that emergency managers and the, certainly the people at the top levels of emergency management, at the federal level, at the state level, they have to walk. That's a very fine line. And, and I, I, I don't think that line is ever going to get any more defined. I think mm. it's just up to, to individuals who are in emergency management positions at the state and federal level have to realize what their responsibilities are and what they can do and what they shouldn't do, what they, what they should do. Uh, and, and everything in America now, uh, a lot of things in America are getting geared toward preparedness. We want citizenry to prepare. We want everybody in a town, on a block, in a house, in an apartment building, wherever they are to prepare for the worst case scenario that may happen in their area. Uh, store up some food, get first aid kits together, do the things that, you know, we, we print pamphlets out about preparedness. We give classes in preparedness. We try to get people prepared for the worst things that can happen. You don't see that so much in developing countries. Preparedness is not, is not discussed, is not, is not, it's not a possible. great thing that the, that, the, that the government does. They can't, they just don't do that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but that fine line that our emergency management people at the highest levels have to walk is, you're right, is a very fine line. In developing countries that I was in, the only help that, that the citizenry could count on was some kind of military help, some kind of moving military units in, to quell riots or to distribute whatever resources there were to distribute. There was no emergency management organizations, so to speak. There was nobody to coordinate all of that that was going on. It was strictly left to the local militia, the local military, or the, or the, uh, the government military from the capital of the country or whatever. But other than that, that was, that was it. Yeah, there was a uh, contracts. I've seen several contracts come out from uh, our side to try to support other countries in developing an emergency preparedness perspective. Unfortunately, they kept on trying to push people who 
had the same nationality as those countries. And so I, I think they're starting to limit their scope and who can actually go there and assist to create, you know, expert plans. Uh, but there is this idea that, you know, in Africa, you probably know this more than anybody else, they don't need to create phone lines and then cell phones. They can just go straight to cell phones, right? And so we can catch people up on the, the most current practice or the most current technology, but that requires, you know, the United States, the UK, Australia, some of these countries who have really developed really strong emergency management plans, including Japan, um, they have really great procedures to start going in and helping integrate uh, some of these ideas to other countries without impacting their culture, right? Um, so you're talking about that fine line. That fine line, you've had to walk that a lot. You create, and I create, uh, you know, catastrophic plans. I liked when you said the 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 worst case scenario for the disaster that could impact the local community. I saw a plan one time where they were talking all about a volcano response and there wasn't a volcano in like a thousand miles. <laughs> and I was like, what, who, what company was hired to write part of this plan that had, it was just like some cookie cutter. So uh, I really push hazard vulnerability assessments that kind of helps people, you know, identify like your, your gaps and what your plans are. But what are some of the most catastrophic plans that you have made and why is that not doomsday prepping again? Um, and most importantly, what were those plans that really impacted you as you looked through the gaps and you said, okay, this this is a career-defining plan that I made? That's a lot of different parts. <laughs> you can break that up. No, but that's okay. I, I, liked, I liked your example of Japan. I mean, when you look at Japan, they have nuclear power plants. They're surrounded by the sea. They have volcanoes and they have earthquakes. I mean, how you can't imagine four better scenarios than that for catastrophic <laughs> events. Now, one man has to do so much, have so many catastrophic plans ready. They they are so vulnerable on at least four different fronts. Whereas you look at some other countries uh, that that I've been in, and they're not, they don't have earthquakes. One, they're not on the sea, so they have no tsunami. They have no floods like that. They don't have much flooding. They're not in a rainforest. They're not in mm. an area that gets a lot of rain. So they don't flood much. They don't have hurricanes. They don't have tsunamis. Some places on the earth are obviously, we would agree, much safer than others when it comes to their vulnerabilities. And so they're not into this, they're not into so much planning as Japan needs to be in. I mean, I can't imagine Japan and the United States have to be in so much planning. It's incredible especially the little island of Japan. But yeah. lots of places on the earth aren't like that. So I remember we were called upon, I was called upon, we, we put a team of planners together uh, probably in 2009 or 10 uh, because uh, northern Nevada was having a series of minor earthquakes, a, a lots of minor little earthquakes happening in Nevada over a uh, couple of months period. And they called us in and said, could you put together a planning effort to design catastrophic plans? Because one of these days, one of these earth, one of these faults is going to give way and it's going to be much more disastrous than all these little faults giving way. And so we were able to work with the state of Nevada and put a planning, put a planning team of about 50 people together, I think. And we went, we did this in the state of Nevada. And we worked for many months on a catastrophic plan for northern Nevada earthquakes, which also included Lake Tahoe and some of the things that could happen up in, in the Sierras uh, earthquake-wise, uh, even across the California line. So we worked with some California officials also. Mm. So that was one of the, I mean, after, over a couple of months period, we developed this, this plan. And I have to say, I, it's a very, very good plan. We had some of, some of my senior mentors that I talked about were in charge of that plan. And uh, I was in charge of a little planning group that actually did, you know, putting the words on the paper after we had whiteboarded everything out over a period of months. And uh, I, that plan was terrific. There was another one I did down in South Florida for a small community of 7,000 people in South Florida, right on the beach. And they, they didn't have an emergency operations plan at all. It never developed one. And uh, this was only about 15 years ago. 
and they'd had, you know, multiple hurricanes over the previous 50 years. I mean, just multiple hurricanes, right. problems, whatever. And they asked us to come, come, can you come down and write an EOP for us? So I did. And I got some other senior planners involved in it. And we put together a great emergency operations plan for this community of 7,000 people who this community relies upon tourism for all of their money, for all, for every, their entire economy is tourism because they're all beaches. And so everything is restaurants and hotels and all that stuff, you know, connected with tourism. So that was an incredible project that we did over a period of a number of months. Uh, those two plans, uh, I think, stand out in my mind as two that I am very proud that I worked on. I like that you noted these plans because I think some other emergency managers would look at a, a town of 7,000 or northern Nevada. I mean, Rodney Melsick, you know, the man, has written plans for the United States, right? You have written some of those, uh, you know, most influential plans over the last 20 years, impacted hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, you know, Hurricane Matthew alone was 2 million people. And yet you noted, hey, a town of 7,000 is still really important. Northern Nevada, who doesn't have a lot of people, but could be, you know, extremely impactful. Uh, it shows that, you know, an emergency manager cares about people. A guy who's yes. ultimate strategic planner who probably could hold himself pretty high. Uh, you're still approachable and you still say, hey, let, let's worry about these people who are most vulnerable. And so I guess the lesson learned would be if you want to have a true emergency management impactful career, you look for the most vulnerable and you get them more secure. Yes. If all emergency managers did that, that would be a, absolutely a step in the right direction for sure. I'm surprised you didn't talk about the, uh, the Olympics because you also were involved with the Olympic planning, right? Oh, yes. Salt Lake City, 2002. I was at the 2002 Olympics. You're right. Boy, there's so many plans that I've <laughs> worked on over the past 22 years. I have pages of lists of them, but you're right. That was, that was a, a wonderful plan we had for Salt Lake City. This was just after, of course, 9-11, the next year after 9-11, and then we were still in the crisis mode from 9-11. And yeah. so for us to go to be invited to Salt Lake City and put together a plan for what would happen if if anything were to happen at the Salt Lake City Olympics. And, and that was a tremendous, tremendous opportunity. And again, and then I was in Florida. Luckily, I got to go to Florida in 2004 when there were four hurricanes within an eight-week period that struck Florida. Big hurricanes. These were small Insane. hurricanes. This was massive planning on a massive scale. One, two, three, four hurricanes over August and September that were just incredible. There was so nice. much... There was so much cooping going on, we couldn't keep track of it, but all the towns and, and, and agencies and whatever that had to coop so many times. Every other weekend we were cooping, it seemed like. Oh my like. gosh. But, but just incredible plans that I've been able to work on. Yeah. And I could, if I, if I had a chance to look at that list that I have, it, it would be, it is kind of incredible. So, uh, you know, as we're wrapping up here, I just want to make sure that you hear it directly from me. I'm extremely grateful to have worked for you. I'm grateful that over the, the course of a, of a career, despite all the things you've done, you've kept your head on where you said, I, I care about vulnerable people because that has impacted me. That's why I got into the field. Uh, I know a lot of people are going to be listening to this and are really grateful for everything you've done. Uh, thank you for coming on here. Thank you for being a great leader for recognizing talent, for listening to Nancy. It's probably the worst advice you ever got <laughs> by hiring me, but I benefited from it, and uh, I know a lot of other people have, and we're going to be interviewing some of those other people. Uh, so thanks again for taking the time to, uh, to talk to us today. Well, it was my pleasure, and I just want everybody out there to know that they, you know that I am at your disposal anytime for anything I can do to help Doberman and to help you in your efforts going forward and what you're doing, what you're trying to put together with Doberman is, is really magical. It's really just interesting and, and exciting and something we need. And so I just want the people to know that, that I am available to you. You and I stay in very close touch. I am available to you to help in any way at any time with anything. And so 
uh, I wish you the very, very best of luck, but I know that it's not going to be luck that, that influences that. It's going to be your, your determination and what you're doing and your knowledge and your experience and, and, and uh, everything that you're doing. So thank you very much for having me. Thanks, Rodney. So everybody, you heard it from Rodney himself. If you want to uh, work with us, you need some consultation on an emergency plan or you're trying to put hazard vulnerability assessment together, COOP, whatever, you can reach out to us. If you have questions about this episode or you want to work with us, please reach out to Doberman Emergency Management at info at dobermanemg.com. That's info at dobermanemg.com.